Morning, everyone. Fantastic to see you. Uh, for those who have not met me before, I'm Martin Polly. I'm the director of the International Centre for Sports History and Culture here at De Montfort uh, and one of your hosts for the day. And we've just got a few very quick uh, opening remarks before we move into our uh, well-awaited, full, big, in-person conference with, uh, with the first keynote from Dick Holt, of course. So first off, just a huge welcome to you to the DMU campus and to the International Centre for Sports History and Culture. Uh, we're not in this building, we're elsewhere, but this is a nicer building for conferences. Uh, we're delighted to have BSSH back after, we think, a 20-year gap. Uh, Matt Neal and I have been scratching our heads over this. We think uh, the, uh, the centre hosted the conference, but it was actually on Leicester University premises. Big boo and hiss, everybody, please. Um, but it's, it's great. It's great to be back, actually, on our campus in what is the centre's 27th year for the 40th anniversary of uh, for the 40th conference of BSSH. We're looking forward to a productive, inspirational and collegiate event. And also, I mean, Dick goes back further than me, but I was casting my mind back to my first BSSH, which was in London in 1996, the first time we actually met. And that year, probably typically, was a 100% male event. Uh, the following year, one woman arrived at conference, so it's great to see such diversity there. It's also great, and one of the things I've always loved about the SSH conference is how diverse it is in terms of career stages of speakers. And this year is no exception. Uh, we have everybody from people speaking who are currently on their taught master's programs. We have PhD students, we have academics at various stages, we have emeritus professors, and we have a great number of independent scholars as well. Um, so it's really good, and I think it's a real badge of honor for how accepting uh, and diverse BSSH is for breaking down those stupid barriers between academic and popular non-academic ways of doing history. Um, we've also delighted to be able to offer you uh, full library access at DMU for your stay. Uh, you just go to the library if you've got any spare time and uh, tell them that you're at a conference and you'll be let, the conference and you'll be let in. Obviously that's reading only, sorry, you can't borrow books while you're here. Uh, and also if you have some time, uh, Special Collections is there which has a great range of sport-related archives, and uh, they've got a slideshow, they've created a slideshow for us, which is running on the, 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 the laptop at reception. It'll be available elsewhere. Special Collections holds uh, papers relating to the histories of boxing, the Special Olympics, thanks to Sue Barton's work, um, skiing, athletics, Simon Inglis's papers, and of course, the archive of BSSH. So take a look at that. A few quick bits of housekeeping before I pass on to Raf to welcome you for BSSH. Uh, the nearest bathrooms here, I've been told, sorry I haven't walked the route myself, are through that door to the left and to the right, but there are various bathrooms at various spaces around the building. Uh, no fire alarms are planned for the next two days of conference, so if one goes off it is real, uh, and please follow the people who know what they're doing, uh, obviously leave, leave the building as quickly as you can. That's normally James actually, James at the back there, so follow James. Um, the seminar rooms, a number of you will already seen, this room is used for all of the core events, the keynotes, the AGM, and the, the big panels about the SSH projects and um, EDI, and then the smaller breakout sessions, the parallels, are all on the, the one floor down, just near where we have coffee in rooms 149, 150, and 151. 
Um, so it's, but it's easy to find your way around. Then the wine reception tonight is in VJ Patel building. Follow us if you're not sure. Then the dinner's at Wigston House, which is a very short walk off campus. And you've all got your food vouchers. If you haven't used those already, uh, it's very clear what's on there. You've got up to the value of the amount written on for breakfast and for lunch. Finally then, some thanks. A uh, huge thanks to our uh, five volunteers who are working with us today. Uh, we've got Barbara, one of our PhD students, Joe and uh, Ben, one of our PhD students, Joe and Will from our MA Sports History and Culture, and Sasha from our BA History. Uh, there'll be one of them in each of the rooms. Uh, they know the login, so if the machines go dead, they'll be able to log you back in, and they'll be helping in all sorts of ways. Thank huge thanks to them. Uh, big thanks in absentia to Jill Cowley, the head of our school, who unfortunately was hoping to be here to say that is sick, and so she wanted to pass on her welcome from the, the School of Humanities and Performing Arts. And then to my colleagues in the centre who have made all of this possible, to Sally Ski, Heather Dicter, Neil Carter, and Matt Taylor, without whom none of this would have happened. Finally, I'll pass on to Raf to say a few words for VSSH, and then to move straight into the opening keynotes. Raf. Thanks, Martin. Great. Um, so, well, I'd like to say a big thank you as well to everyone um, for coming, for making the effort to be here to celebrate BFSH's 40th anniversary. Um, for those who don't know me, um, I'm Ras Nicholson. Um, I'm the current chair of BFSH, um, probably not for too much longer. I think this is going to be my final day in the role. So, <laughs> um, I love our annual conference. I always really look forward to it. Um, it's such a friendly place to be, um, and I hope that those of you who are here for the first time really experience that over the next couple of days. Um, yeah, if you've not been here before, I really hope you enjoy it. Um, it's also good to see so many familiar faces in the room. Um, after COVID, I think it's still really special um, to be able to catch up in person like this um, and, and be together in a room together. Um, and um, I would like to say uh, a big thank you um, to the International Centre for Sports History and Culture for hosting us here at DMU. Um, Martin Pulley has just thanked everybody else, but was far too modest to thank himself. Um, so thank you so much to Martin and to um, his colleague who just mentioned for having us here. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. It really does take an enormous amount of work to make this conference happen behind the scenes. Um, so thank you very much. We're, we're very grateful. Um, and there's a, a really nice um, symmetry, I think, in, in being here at the MU at the centre um, to celebrate this 40th anniversary of BSSH. Um, and over the next couple of days, um, there are going to be um, some opportunities to kind of reflect um, on the history and the future of BSSH. I hope that the, the programme reflects that. Um, and that's actually going to begin with, with Dick Holt's keynote um, in a couple of minutes' time, which is kind of opening the conference this morning. Um, just a word about social media um, before I introduce Dick. Um, we really encourage you to post about the conference, um, to post photographs, um, to, to tweet about panels um, and any other sessions that you attend um, using the hashtag BSSH2022. So hashtag BSSH2022. Um, it's great to kind of search for that hashtag and, and see Twitter lighting up. Um, 
If you are presenting a paper um, or speaking um, and you prefer people not to post publicly um, on social media for any reason, for example, if it's sensitive in some way or, or if it's work in progress, um, then please just flag this with the chair of your session beforehand um, and the chair will then remind delegates not to tweet during your paper or not to post on, on other um, other brands of social media are available. Um, so yeah, just, just flag this up with the chair and, and we will all respect that, of course. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, everyone. I'm really looking forward to a stimulating and uh, hopefully a fun couple of days. Um, so I will introduce our first session of the conference. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Richard Holt here to open the conference um, with a very special keynote lecture reflecting on 40 years of the BSSH and, and British sports history. Um, Professor Dick Holt has worked here at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at the MU uh, since 1994, I think, um, and he's now um, <laughs> a professor um, emeritus at the centre. Um, Dick is the author of numerous influential works on sports history, including Sport and Society um, in, in Modern France, Sports in Britain, 1945-2000 with, with Tony Mason, and of course, Sport in the British, a modern history. Um, in 2012, he part scripted and edited the 30 part BBC Radio 4 series, Sport and the British, presented by Claire Balding. Um, he's currently co editor with Matt Taylor of the Peter Lang monograph series, Sport History and Culture. Great series, uh, I may be slightly biased. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my first book was published in, as part of that series. Um, he's a life fellow of BSSH, um, and he gave, I believe, um, he gave his first keynote lecture at the inaugural meeting of the BSSH, so there's a really nice symmetry in having him here today. Um, and may I say, it's actually kind of partly Dick's fault that we are here celebrating um, 40 years in this way, because I don't know if he remembers this, but back in November 2019, kind of pre-COVID, I had the good fortune to be sat next to him at a dinner in Leicester. Um, and towards the end of the evening, he sort of sat back in his chair and looked at me and he said, hmm, I think the 40th anniversary of BSSH is approaching that. How are you going to be celebrating? <laughs> um, and up to that point, I had not, this had not been on my radar at all. It was very early in my, uh, in my reign as chair. Um, so had it not been for that very fortuitous conversation, um, the, uh, the, the kind of 40th anniversary activities uh, might well never have come to bear. So not for the first time the field of British sports history finds itself in enormous debt to you, Professor Holt. <laughs> um, I believe that Dick's currently working on a revised version of his most famous work, Sports of the British. Um, I just, <laughs> over the years, uh, one infamous line from his book um, has provided an excellent straw man for those like myself writing a feminist history of British sport. Uh, the history of sport in modern Britain is a history of men, so I'd like to thank Dick personally <laughs> for that. I didn't say that was a good thing. <laughs> Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has uh, to say today in his keynote, which is entitled Taking Stock, British Sports History, 40 Years On. Over to you, Dick. Thank you. Right. 
well, people have taken all my first lines. <laughs> it's true, I did, actually. I, I think there must be. Uh, Richard Cox is here, is he? Um, someone who was there in Liverpool in 1982. And it's true, there, there was one female, uh, I remember Beryl Furlong, I think, from um, uh, Liverpool Physical Education Department, but things have changed. And so first of all, actually, um, I do want to thank the BSSH, you know, for asking me, you know, to give this lecture. I think I probably prompted them a bit because I sort of wanted to in a way. Um, but I called it 40 years on and I thought, God, people will think they're expected to sing the Harrow School song, you know, like <laughs> they, um, which is a great sports song, as we know, but uh, that's not required. Um, so I was a young lecturer, young, relatively young, early 30s. Uh, it was the first sort of conference I'd ever been asked to give a keynote lecture to when we met. And, you know, it's really, no one had any idea at the time. I think you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's, and to be here 40 years later, I mean, I'm delighted to be here myself, but I'm delighted the BSSH has prospered so well. Um, and that sports history more generally has grown as such a significant area of, of study, both in, in general history, but also in the history, in, in the study of sport. It is especially pleasing, and I'm not just saying this, you know, lightly. It's especially pleasing that what did begin as, as an entirely male group with an almost entirely male agenda um, now has so many more female researchers and leaders of the, of the society, without which I don't think, you know, it would have prospered in the way that it has. Um, so that's a success. I think the other successes... You know, good publications, um, a good journal. That takes a lot of work, and the people that put a lot of effort into that, they know who they are, deserve a lot of credit. I'm certainly not one of them. I didn't do the hard yards, but other people did. And it is a good journal. Support for young scholars, and of course, good conferences. Um, you know, there's been a many um, and memorable ones, um, and I hope this one will, will similarly um, work for all of you. Um, so I'm really here all, glad also that we could do this at the International Centre Sports History and Culture at De Montfort um, and the BSSH together. It's a special pleasure for me because I've benefited enormously, you know, from both institutions and um, I'd like to thank Martin as well for everything he's done and everyone else in the centre. So. Um, the BSSH has seen sports history move from, I think it's fair to say, obscurity. Um, sports history moved from obscurity into the mainstream of historical writing. That's the, the key thing. My brief, you know, has been to survey what's been done on British sport, uh, not only by members of the BSSH, but much more widely. And I need to be clear at the outset um, that this is a survey of content not a discussion of form. Um, Jeff Hill isn't here today, he would like to have been, and I floated this with him. He said, you're not talking about methodology enough, you know. Um, and that's true. Uh, it is more in content than form. But, um, of course, and there are all sorts of different ways of cutting the cake. And the agenda that I've chosen is very much a sort of general historian's one. If you start from a more... Um, physical culture agenda, you're going to look at a whole set of different issues around the body, around science and health and so forth. 
which I haven't done. Neither am I a kind of theorist, although I don't chuck ideas out, but I never, I never followed the line of historical sociology that you began with your concept and you worked through. There's people that have done that, some very good people. Um, Alan Gutman is a Viberian, and I mean, he's got a good claim to be the sort of founder of you know, sports history as a subject, as a serious subject. But that's not my own approach, uh, has been um, to look at sport through the lens of general history uh, and try to set specific activities within distinctive structures and cultures of, of class, by and large, um, within, within a single state, but which, as we'll come to, was also a multinational state. Um, so with that in mind, I thought, well, how do you do this? I mean, how do you cut this cake? You know, how do you, how do you try to work through, see the wood for the trees of what is an enormous amount of research? Um, I mean, you could go sport by sport, and uh, that would be a bit repetitive, <laughs> to say the least. And I don't think it would locate sports history properly in the general development of um, a British society. You could go by century and look at different centuries. Um, and that's sort of slightly appealing, you know, sitting there, 18th century gambling, 19th century morality, 20th century media. I thought, in rule of three, I started off as an originally as a historian of France, so the rule of three always appealed very strongly to me. But that's too vast. It's not going to work. Um, so what I've done is try to um, structure the, the survey around um, themes that are, seem to me to be important. Um, so I've taken, I've taken three groups of two themes. So uh, this will be, I mean, first of all, what's most familiar to me and what I've done most work on myself, but also more importantly, what other people have worked on, which is, is around social class. And I think particularly looking at the themes of professionalism and amateurism, which have been taken up a great deal of the energy of uh, historians of sport in the last 40 years. The second set of themes, two themes, are around identity. And I think there you look at the cross-cutting uh, themes of uh, gender and ethnicity, gender and race, um, as how they intersect with social class. Um, and the third element is much more collective and very loosely political in the sense of looking at the United Kingdom as a multinational state. So the third set of themes are nationalism and internationalism. So by the way, as I said to Conrad just before, um, this is a bit dense. Um, and um, I will, I have written it all out, which is very unusual for me, you know. I'm usually doing it on the back of an envelope on the train, you know, the day before, but I have written this all out, and I will send it to the society so people can read the whole thing in detail. Um, so I won't, I won't read it out to you. Um, but amateurism and professionalism, gender and race, nationalism and internationalism, those are the six themes that I've chosen. As I said, I mean, you could do all sorts of others uh, and choose others, and other people will do that, as I'm sure, in their own way. Um, I'll conclude by looking at what I know least and what I know best. And what I know least is the history of physical culture and of the body. That's the bit I've struggled with most um, in uh, the history of sport. 
Um, and what I know best is simply the writing of general histories, because that's really what I've done, and mostly picking up on other people's work and trying to fit it into a pattern. I'll try to think brief. I'll try to say briefly what I think has been well done, and what remains to be done. I've restricted myself to books, and I apologise in advance, you know, for people that have written terrific articles. A lot of you here have written a few myself. You can't do articles as well as books in a in a service such as this. I think. Um, and I apologize in advance for, you know, inevitable oversights and omissions. I mean, there's no other way. Um, one neglect I think is particularly important and I like to highlight right at the beginning. Um, it's an area I'm not going to go to, but I think is so important. And that is um, the history of medieval and early modern sport, particularly 16th, 17th, 18th, 18th century, I begin with, but 16th, 17th century sport. You know, this is the undiscovered country, you know, um, and we're talking about modernity here. Uh, I'm going to say history of, right, about history of modern sport. But the very idea of modernity probably needs to be interrogated. And if we knew more about what was going on in the 16th and 17th century, I have a pretty strong idea that we'd find uh, sports professionals, organized clubs, rules, all sorts of things that um, we didn't we didn't quite anticipate, but that's for another day uh, and another speaker. So actually, so this is the lecture that I've written, which you will, um, you know, uh, read if you want to um, on the BSSH website. And now I'll return to my more familiar form of, you know, the back of the envelope. Um, professionalism is the first thing I wanted to talk about because I think, partly because I think it's, it's the one that's attracted most attention and been sort of in, in many ways most thoroughly done. And what we know more about, you know, elite professional sportsmen, very much so in this case. Um, and, and beginning in the 18th century, I mean, I'm looking at several of you here in the audience. I know you've written um, extensively about this. Um, so, that's really where I think the literature really starts to sort of take off. Um, and I think of, um, it is a time to sort of recognize people who, um, you know, many of them now, unfortunately, have passed away, but made really important contributions. Um, Dennis Brailsford is somebody that comes to mind straight away. I, wrote a book, one of the first books I ever read, called Sport from Elizabeth to Anne, which is a 16th, 17th century study of the physical training sort of manuals. But he was better known, in fact, for writing about uh, professional sport in the 18th century. And particularly an excellent, his last book, Taste for Diversions in the late 18th century, early 19th century, is a, it's a really fine overview of the state of um, English sport uh, at that time, but what it focused on very strongly was this creation of a culture of um, professional sport around the idea of champions and those that hired by wealthy noblemen usually to represent them as pugilists, as pedestrians, uh, looking at Mike Huggins here author of an excellent book about horse racing in the 18th century, jockeys. These, these were the first sort of group of what was identified as sort of modern sports, sporting figures, men who were paid to be, uh, to perform to the highest level and who performed in front of crowds and who um, earned some cases very considerable amounts of money. And Jack Broughton, the most famous of those pugilists, 
who died in 1789 and lived into his 80s, is buried in Westminster Abbey. I mean, it's rather remarkable, and left a lot of money. And so there were some really big success stories um, of the 18th century. Oarsmen as well, uh, you know, the, the river man, Broughton originally started as a rower um, and, and then converted to, to boxing. Um, those, I have found that's very good. I mean, cricket is the other one, um, Hambledon and all that. David um, Underdown's uh, history of 18th century cricket started play is really a quite exceptional book. And um, I would say to anybody that hasn't read it, if you want to read a model study of how to write about sport from a deeply historical perspective. I mean, Underdown wasn't a sports historian, he's professor of uh, early modern history at Yale. But he came from Somerset and he was passionate about Somerset cricket. And when he retired from Yale, um, he told me that was he was going to write the book. Uh, and indeed he did. And it is a very good example of how to write a, a monograph um, uh, on, on largely on professional sport because he had ex excellent knowledge also of the patrons. So we began with that world of patronized sport that I think is really, you know, there's plenty more to be done, I'm sure. But what's been done is well done, and we've got quite a strong foundation there. What we don't know much about is what people were doing that weren't involved in those sorts of activities. Um, Malcolmson's book, early book um, on recreation and society in the 18th century, early 1970s, was an important first step. PhD under E.P. Thompson at Warwick, um, so it came right out of that new social history tradition which I came out of and which, um, you know, fueled a great deal of what leisure history, which then kind of morphed into, into sports history and for some of us. Um, we got to the 18th century and then we somehow just jumped to the late 19th century. So we got a second dose of professional sport studies. Um, Jim Walvin, um, the York, gave a series of lectures at York, got Matt here, who's a pupil of Jim, I think, um, and he published his lectures on football. Uh, I remember reading in the TLS, oh, goodness me, somebody's written about you know, football history. That was 1975, which got the ball rolling, called the book The People's Game, which deeply annoyed Tony Mason, who was at work on this great, on the grand history of early football. And that was his working title, uh, The People's Game. So he had to change it to the rather more anodyne Association Football and English Society, 1863 to 1915. If any of you, used, I have got one, my copy. If any of you have a copy, apparently it's worth a fortune on, um, but now Dill Porter has a very good idea of reissuing it with an introduction. So um, that will be available. It is the classic text. I assume that most of you will know it. Um, it's, it's got an extraordinarily le level of scholarship. You know, you read the notes. There's often five or six references to newspapers in a single note. Um, as a product of someone who was passionate about football, it still is, unfortunately can't be here. But um, set a standard for the writing of uh, work, particularly on the professional game. It doesn't say so much about um, grassroots football, he, although he does say something, but not as much. And I think that set a very high standard that then got others going. 
Nick Fishwick's um, book uh, on um, football in the early first half of the 20th century, which was an Oxford thesis, is a very good book as well. I mean, worked on primary sources, looks at the south of England, which is quite interesting that most football is about the north of England. Um, and he's rewriting that, interestingly, now, after a, a very distinguished career in the um, Foreign Office. Uh, he couldn't get an academic job under Mrs. Thatcher, so he went off to um, become one of Britain's leading diplomats. Um, but, I mean, he's that book, Dave Russell's book on um, football, football in England, or the English, um, followed from that. Another really important historian of um, a professional sport. Uh, and and a, a whole range of other issues, uh, Dave Russell. And that, that brings me um, to um, Matt Taylor. Um, of course, I would say Matt's work has set the standard, the new standard. But it is true in the sense that his work on the leaguers was a real... The re gave you the real story of how professional football worked uh, in an institutional sense from the Football League and also the conditions of work of footballers and seeing football as work. Uh, Matt was very clear about that. Um, and then, you know, bringing that together in his big book, The Association Game, which I think still is the sta I mean, is for me the standard text on the history of the most popular sport um, in Britain. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's a bit too difficult to get. I think it should be out in a cheap edition. But anyway, uh, there you go. Matt will have to fight that with his publishers. So there was, now, there were two bits here. I don't want to go on too long about this. But um, so there's the 18th century and there's the 19th century that sets the tone for football history up to the 1960s and 70s when you get the end of the maximum wage and you get the new world of football starting to take place. You know, football is only £100 a week, absolutely astonishing to me in the 1960s, um, when they earned £20 a week uh, until 1962, 160-162. What there's an important book that I really do want to flag up here, and that is Adrian Harvey's book on the beginnings of a commercial sporting culture, which makes the link between the late 18th century, early 19th century, and the late 19th century. So it's a book about the first half of the 19th century, which is a bit of a kind of gap in sports history. There's much less about it, certainly, than the, the, the later 19th century. Um, and I thought he looked at that very interestingly. It's, it is about, mostly about professional sport. And it's also about how sport became, you know, I mean, was really a victim of, its, of gambling. And there was a moral crisis of, of sport in the early Victorian period, the 1840s uh, particularly, horse racing famously, but also pedestrianism, pugilism, and so forth. And that brings me to the next aspect that I want to talk about, really, um, which is which is amateurism, um, because the moral crisis of Victorian sport did have a role in the development of this new value system of amateur sport in the second half of the 19th century. But just looking down here, before I do that, I must flag up other kinds of professionals, even very briefly. But and of course the. The, the great one is um, is rugby, the rugby league, and 
the BSSH didn't give Tony Collins, I think, four Aberdare prizes for nothing. Um, you know, when I came to do my work, rugby um, was really, you know, a, a, a terra ignodita, really. Um, so there is, you know, um, BTC, so like before Tony Collins and after Tony Collins. Um, and and th that work on rugby's great split, rugby league in the 20th century, then he I uh, never thought he would move from rugby league, but then he went over to write a book about rugby union and then other books about global football codes. I mean, that has really been an exceptional contribution, and I'm really glad the society has, has recognized that. Um, so, um, there's cricket, of course, as well, and um, cricket professionals. Rick Sisson's a book there, an Australian scholar, you know, first did this idea of the All England Travelling Professional Club of the mid-19th century. And then you look at how that was sort of really kind of snuffed out by the MCC and how the, the world of professional county cricket came into existence. Um, and, you know, Der um, Derek Burley, obviously is really important in that way. Somebody that just, he loved cricket, he wrote well, um, and uh, he was steeped in the sport. Uh, and then also Keith Sanderford's book about cricket and the Victorians, I think was really important. You got to find out, you know, how much did they make? How did they live? What were their contracts like? What were these benefits that were so, you know, sought after by professional cricketers to buy a house or a little business if you did give 10 years with the club and so forth? He really got that going. Um, and that was all pulled together, I think, finally by, by Ray Van Plew in the book Pay Up and Play the Game, which is published in 1989, um, which looked at... Um, uh, jockeys, of course, because Ray had written The Turf back in 1975, one of the very first books um, about professional sport, about horse racing. But then in Pay Up and Play the Game, he had cricket, he had football, he had jockeys and so forth. So it was an important, a sort of landmark book, actually, um, I, uh, uh, Pay Up and Play the Game. Of course, it was also Ray that founded this centre, and if it hadn't been for him coming back from Australia at a time when there was money to do things, you know, this wouldn't have existed. And you know, he certainly gave me a job when I was looking for one. So I'm very grateful. Right, amateurism. Um, that's a lot about professionalism, but it's because there is such a lot about it, um, and it is. You know, we have focused a lot on elite sport. Um, Probably too much, actually. Uh, and in a way, in the future, grassroots stuff is many ways sort of, for me, you know, the way to go. Um, amateurism, I mean, I think there's an important difference to make. You know, the amateurism is sort of two things, really. Uh, there's amateur sport and there's amateurism, which are two, the sense different things. Amateurism as, a, um, as an ideology of sport, as a set of principles under which belief sport should be carried out, a kind of sporting morality. Um, 
is associated particularly in the history of this society and in the early years with um, J.A. Manga and Tony Manga. Um, not have to think, say fairly, I think, not an uncontroversial figure, um, but an important, a genuinely important one. Um, his work on the ideology of athleticism, the way public schools promoted a new way of playing, imbued it with a kind of imperialistic uh, uh, and uh, militaristic uh, ethos, as, as he put it, particularly in relation to sport in the empire, was very important. Um, and it, it really got things going. For the history of amateur, oddly enough, there isn't a history of amateurism. It's one of the big gaps in sports history. Nobody's actually written one. That what there is, is an athleticism sort of got in the way. You know, this thing seemed to drop out of the sky in, through the public schools and set the tone for amateur sport. But Mangan and, and, and others that followed that line didn't really follow it through into the state school system. Um, we didn't really make the distinction between intention and effect. Um, yes, you can find plenty of headmasters and militarists and, you know, doctors and politicians and what have you that lecture about the importance of sport um, for, you know, for health, for patriotism, so forth. Um, the ex extent to which this actually sort of filtered through and operated is another question and much harder to do. Um, and so I don't think what the jury's sort of out on that, really. Um, uh, whether amateur values, how deeply they penetrate it. Um, they certainly did. Um, and there's evidence, you know, working class amateurism is a, is a real thing. It's not, but it's, the question then becomes, more, the more familiar question then is, is amateurism really just a form of class um, you know, separation? It, it's a device by which the middle classes, by banning the payment of players, by banning gambling, it's a very important part of amateurism that's underestimated in many ways. Was it really just a way of separating the social classes in Britain that was evolving into, you know, what Harold Perkin famously called the mature class society, where people who knew where they were, learned to live in their groups and, you know, related to each other in that way, um, in terms of their own sort of class cultures. Um, I think it goes beyond that, and I think the problem is that if you just take with you the sort of instrumental view that amateurism is about um, class separation, you do miss a lot. Um, and I think you miss things that, things that perhaps haven't been looked at very much. Um, I think one way of looking at amateurism as a set of values would be to go backwards and look at the idea of civility as it developed from the 16th to the 18th century as a new form of sort of, of upper class, uh, upper class set of values that then become not exactly democratized, but they become much more popularized in the 19th century and essentially get called respectability. And, um, that whole side of things, I think, could be taken a bit further. I mean, I would say that my, you know, my mentor as a historian is Keith Thomas, and Thomas has devoted his life to writing about those things. But I think it helps. The other, the other thing, briefly, is evangelicalism. The, um, you know, uh, the religious imperative uh, was strong, and, and I underrated it when I wrote Sport in the British. I didn't see, I didn't give the Victorians enough. 
And I would, uh, I gave them too much class consciousness and perhaps not quite enough religious impetus. Uh, so the evangelicalism that drove the banning of brutal sports was also an element in the creation of, a, of an amateur sporting culture of, of fair play and sportsmanship and so forth. It's, you know, it's like um, uh, my favorite singer, Billy Holiday, said about the blues, you know, it's a mixed up thing. You've just got to feel it. I mean, amateurism is a mixed up thing. Um, and I think there's, there's, room for, there's room for more good books about it. Um, there's been good stuff. I'm looking at Dale Porter here. Dale's work on amateur football has been really important. Um, but I do think it is patchy, our, cover, our, our coverage of um, amateur sport. And actually, particularly in the most obvious sense of um, just who did what. Because amateur sport in one way just simply means mass participation, recreational sport. And surprisingly, we don't know that much about it. Um, because of our fascination with elite sport, um, Neil Tranter, who I worked with in Sterling many years ago, you know, um, had the good idea of just going off and digging in the archives around Sterling and going through the papers and just finding out how many sports clubs were set up in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Because he found absolutely enormous numbers of them. And this didn't include Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, and I know, you know, um, uh, Malcolm McDowell's done good work on, on Glasgow football, and we've got a much better idea of that. Um, sorry, 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 yeah, right, you know what I mean, yeah, sorry, 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 I mean, uh, and I'm, I, you know, I live in Scotland, I shouldn't do that, but look, I'm giving you a pat on the back, it, it's a, it, important, that's important work around Glasgow, but there's a lot more to be done, I'm really saying there's a lot more to be done on this, not like, Jack Williams, another really significant person, I think, in this history of this society and in sports history, I mean, the stuff he did on just trying to dig up um, numbers of church cricket teams, for example. You know, Bolton had about 100 church cricket teams in 1900. He looked at Sunderland and Barnsley. He looked at all kinds of, you know, and that, that stuff is important, and I think we could do more of it um, in, in, in terms of amateur sport, definitely. In a way, it comes down to doing more urban history in the end, and to reconnect a bit. Um, American sports history was very strong on urban history right from the beginning. You know, these key texts about how Boston played, uh, you know, Chicago, Steve Reese on Chicago and so forth. And I think there's room for that. We're in Leicester, which has three elite, you know, sports um, teams uh, in different sports, and uh, which, you know, would be an excellent subject for, uh, you know, a bottom-up uh, history of sport. So there's room there in amateur sport, and of course that takes you into a broadly speaking a sort of class structure of a modern sport. Um, so that's professionalism and amateurism, you know, very briefly. Um, gender is the next bit, of course, because I mean, you know, if there's a poem, isn't it a poem, A Martian Sends a Postcard Home. It's about, it. I forget who wrote it now. Anyway, it's about imagining someone comes from outer space and lands, you know, on Earth and looks around and says, what's going on? Well, I mean, if you did that, the thing you would notice about sports in, 
in it historically would be the extent to which it had been, um, as, as uh, Ralph pointed out in the you know, a history of men. And, it, and now, it's true that that has, been, that has been the case. And it's also rather surprising that having said that, there's actually relatively little about sport and masculinity as a kind of set of values and linking up sports history with the history of masculinity as written by people like John Tosh and so forth, um, and to look at different class cultures of masculinity, um, which are straight, quite strikingly different. I mean, middle class men have different ways of marginalizing women from working class men. Um, you know, there's a few things. There was, there was Chandler and McDevitt's, uh, uh, um, sorry, Chandler and Now Wright's book, there was McDevitt's book, May the Best Man Win, on masculinity. But I think there's, a, there's more to be done there. But that brings to the other side, of course, which is, is female sport. And that is the big change. That's the most important thing that's, uh, that's moved. And when I started doing this stuff and when I tried to write general history and the shortcomings, I was very aware when I did it of the shortcomings of the coverage of women's sport. So there were three people, really. There was Sheila Fletcher that wrote Women First and a rather good sort of short history of, you know, physical education, who was a physical education lecturer in Bedford. There was Catherine McCrone, who did a sort of mangan for women's sport. I mean, she did, you know, the girls' public schools. And it was a very, you know, very solid bit of work, useful. Um, and then I think she went off to do other things and didn't... Um, pursue it. And then there was, you know, Jennifer Hargreaves, Jenny Hargreaves, who was really very important and interestingly came from sociology I and mean, she always said to me, I'm not a historian, you know, she did some very good history. I remember reading her stuff about Madame Bergman Osterberg, I was absolutely, yeah, we're going to, I, I said I wasn't going to talk about articles, but there actually is an article that is really worth uh, reading. Um, and then she brought things together in Sporting Females in 1994. So that was the trio, I think the early trio of, you know, uh, women's sports history. Um, and then there's been a bit of a hiatus, but I mean, what is so striking now is the way that, um, you know, this has just gathered pace and momentum and uh, how we, when I, I mean, when I was trying to work on this, there was almost nothing, I couldn't find out anything about women's cricket, or hockey, even hockey, which is pretty important women's sport, wasn't well covered, we now have work on that, wasn't much on netball, I mean, women's football just essentially, you know, didn't exist, apart from a few references to Dick Kerr's ladies, uh, that was it. So, all of that, I think, is going in absolutely um, the right direction. And um, I was lucky enough to uh, examine Fiona Skillen's thesis at Glasgow. Um, and, and clearly there was an attempt to write a more general study of interwar uh, women's sport, um, which I've, I've you know, found very useful, very important. Um, so, I mean, it really has made a big difference, and I think um, I saw that you know um, Fiona and Carol tried to pull some of this work together a few years ago. Um, I think there is room for a, an, a big history now. Uh, someone, someone probably in this room, I don't know, to pull this stuff together and 
and integrate it into the wider history of female leisure, work and leisure, kind of thing that Claire Langhammer and Selena Todd and people like that do. There's, there's a real opportunity for that. Um, so that is a, is a good book that I'm sure, you know, one of you will, will write in the future. Um, but certainly now, having trying to write myself, rewriting my old books, I mean, it is much easier for me now to integrate uh, female sport into the general narrative of British sport, rather than having it sort of located in a you know in a specific bit. You can you know that's that's the the ambition anyway, and it's certainly. Um, it's certainly been very successful, I think, so far, and it's on the way up. I mean, um, the cricket thing, I'll just mention that, not because Raf's sitting right there, but, um, you know, it, the cricket was particularly interesting. It was Raf's, Raf's book. Um, and then Judy, Trophel Sykes, the thesis. I mean, I was reading that thesis, and, you know, this sort of buried, sometimes you find these buried treasure, you know. <laughs> so in the middle of it, and, well, it says, well, the Northern Leagues the Northern Cricket Leagues in the 1920s and 30s, you know, had women's teams attached to them. She said, actually, there were hundreds of these teams. There was a lot of them, you know. I mean, that just came out of the sky for me. I just, every, just occasionally you get something you just don't know. And if someone had asked me to guess, did, did men's league, Lancashire league teams and things like that have women's, I would have said no. But, it, I mean, that turns out to be wrong. And so it just shows, you know, these things, research, grassroots research evolves. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of other examples of similar. There's just more there than we thought. So that's one, obviously, one form, uh, important form of agenda. Um, uh, sorry, important form of um, identity that cuts across class because middle class women had very different sports opportunities to working class women. And tennis and golf, tennis particularly, um, <clears throat> Rob Lake's work showed that very clearly, um, was a really important source of female sport, in, particularly from the 1920s and 30s onwards. Although I wrote a history of a golf club and to my surprise, which was founded in 1903 in North London, and a third of all the members, founding members, were women. Now, they were not treated equally with the male members, but they were in the club. Um, so that, that stuff's significant. Um, the extent to which working-class women had opportunities, particularly after marriage, I think is very different. And if I think of my mother, who was born in Tyneside in the interwar period, and her sisters and people like that, I mean, you know, <clears throat> it would be culturally impossible for them you know, to play, certainly, a game like football. Or we just never have thought of it. And their own mothers would have been appalled by the thought they did it, let alone, you know, their husbands. So um, that class element is clearly important. Um, race and ethnicity, that's the next theme. Um, it's, it's very, um, it, has been a, it has been a gap, really. Um, and we haven't done enough work on this. Uh, but it's important and it's changing. Um, here, I mean, first of all, if you just look in chronologically, the largest immigrant group into Britain from the late 19th, early 20th century were East European Jews, about a quarter of a million in the end between about the 1890s and 1930s. 
And there was nothing on Jewish thought. And Tony Collins and I remember sitting thinking about this and, you know, put in an application to a research council. Um, and that's another story, you know, so A-rated, not funded, sort of tattooed on your forehead. Um, we put in a, a bid, didn't get it, but we had a nice project, and then a splendid DMU student came along and took up, you know, was, passed the ball to him, and he ran with it, and um, produced, Dave Dean produced uh, Sport and British Jury, uh, which is a really significant sort of path-breaking book, um, deals very comprehensively with the subject and and also is very interesting in terms of the way in which the indigenous Jewish community, smaller Jewish community, tried to sort of anglicize the immigrants and tried to create a sort of culture of assimilation into British values through sport. Sport was absolutely critical to doing that. Um, and I think the boys' clubs of the East End, boxing particularly, sort of thing. And all I knew about Jewish sport before that was there were these amazing boxers, you know, Kid Lewis and people like that, world champions. I never really knew where it came from and how it, how it grew. So that's been good um, and important. Um, Irish immigration uh, was the other, there's the other big immigrant group. Um, so, I mean, controversially called immigrants because, of course, until 1922, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom um, of Great Britain and Ireland. But Irish groups um, have been significant. They've tended to be seen, certainly in Scotland, in terms of the history of the old firm. You know, this is a Celtic Rangers, Hibs, Hearts to some extent. Um, there hasn't been that much, on, to my knowledge, on, on grassroots Irish immigrant sport. There could be more. Um, we'll come to nationalism in a moment because Ireland is a fascinating story from point of view of uh, sports history. But in terms of immigration history into Britain, there's probably more could be done. And when I lived in Leicester, I used to go up and play golf at Humberston, uh, you know, Heights Golf Course. Recommended, it's a terrific municipal golf course. And um, right next to it is a GAA. Uh, ground, you know. So about the third hole, you could see over and watch them practicing, you know, and this is in Leicester. You know, perhaps we should know more about this. Um, then, of course, this brings us to um, Windrush, to uh, the Caribbean immigration of the 19, late 1940s, 50s, the black British sport, um, of which really there hasn't been much written. Um, Phil Vasily wrote a book about Arthur Wharton, the first black professional footballer. Um, the key text um, really is, is I'll come to in a moment, which is um, Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James, um, which is not specifically about Britain. It's about the Caribbean more generally. Um, but we haven't had enough on um, the history of uh, black sport and, and, and even less, actually, on, um, you know, South Asian, East African Asian immigration into Britain and its, and its sporting consequences. Uh, John Williams and I at Leicester put in a bid for um, a big bid to study the history of sport and ethnicity in Leicester, which we didn't get. 
<laughs> I was rather annoyed to see when I looked at the list of things that had been funded for about the same amount of money by Leverhulme. A project had they'd funded a project for the removal of seabird waste from remote Scottish islands. I thought I wouldn't even mind if they were inhabited Scottish islands, you know, <laughs> but remote, and we wanted to sh we wanted to study how a really important, um, you know. Uh, ethnic minority engaged with sport in a in a in a multi uh, in a multiracial city. Anyway, we didn't get it. But a spin-off, Paul Campbell, um, who we uh, supervised jointly, John Williams and myself, um, wrote uh, a very interesting kind of PhD, a genuinely interdisciplinary work, which is quite unusual. I mean, he came from sociology. Um, he did a participant observer study of a black football club, which has to remain anonymous, although many of you will know what it is. Um, and, and then he tied it in, and I tried to urge him to tie it in with contemporary history. Say, look, you know, this club was founded in the 1970s. He's writing 40 years later. There's at least two generations, almost three generations of people. You know, this is history as well as sociology. And, you know, being a... A, a good uh, ex-professional footballer, you know, he, he got, he took the ball and he ran with it and he, he won the prize for the best sociology, new sociology book from the British Society, Sociological Society. So that was a book on, so that's an important example, I think, of the kinds of thing you can do. But it's still, this is, you know, it's still in its infancy, really. And I think particularly, you know, looking at gender, and we're going to look at more, there needs to be more historical work, particularly looking at the intersection. You know, of the two. Nationalism. Um, right. Well, nationalism, national histories and nationalism are not the same thing. I mean, we've written, there's a lot of national histories in which we take the nation state as a structure and write about what happened, you know, in that structure. Um, nationalism is something different. It's a sort of belief in um, the particular identity and value of this particular place in which in which you live um, and that in a sense thinking that you're special and trying to find out why what are the distinguishing cultural characteristics of your nation and sports being tremendously important in that obviously and particularly in a multinational state it's rather a strange multinational state of the United Kingdom um, Ireland was, Ireland is just a world of its own. You have a whole lecture about Irish sports history. It's come of age. It's had some tremendous work done because sport was so intensely politicized in Ireland right from the beginning, right from the 1880s and the setting up of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Sport as an instrument of national um, uh, emancipation is they would say, uh, Irish nationalists would say, it, um, has produced a whole lot of excellent work. The Gaelic Athletic Association is now really well studied. Mike Cronin and Paul Rouse got a million euros in 2007 to do a people's history, a history from below of the GAA. The, the date is significant because a year later it's a financial crash. They would have never got that money to do it <laughs> ever. But they got it, they did it, they produced three books, they produced a huge website. You can see sport from the perspective of the people that drove the buses, you know, tore up the tickets, stood on the terraces, and the people that played uh, 
GAA games, hurling and Gaelic football, and then, you know, went to work in shops and schools and on, on Monday afterwards. It's a fascinating history of, of an amateur sport on, that in many ways has kind of more, it's more amateur than, that, that, than the British model that it was in many ways seeking to, re to, to, to reject. But in terms of um, in terms of Great Britain, I mean, I think Scotland, Wales, England, um, Wales is a very clear example of where a, a sport, rugby union, becomes um, a symbol, the sheet anchor of our self-respect. Is the quote that um, Gareth Williams used from George Ewart Evans? I think it's a fantastic phrase. That rugby's the street an the, the sheet anchor of our self-respect. So there was um, uh, Fields of Praise, 1981, history, Centenary History of the Welsh Rugby Union by Di Smith and Gareth Williams. Um, apparently, Carwin James is sort of famous uh, Welsh rugby. It was the best thing that came out of the centenary. Um, I'm looking at you, Richard, here. Who <laughs> knows something about that. He's also written very well about Welsh rugby. Um, <clears throat> Gareth then produced a set of essays, 1905 and all that. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Johns um, used some of that work in his history of Wales. I think, I think we have got a really excellent kind of case study of how a, a sport can come to embody, you know, a set of national values. Um, in the Welsh case, in Scotland, um, it's football. Well, in Scotland, it's split. It's the Edinburgh bourgeoisie and border farmers were the rugby crowd. And it was, you know, friendly. It was, it was much more friendly than the football world. Uh, I've sort of experienced both. Um, but the main source of Scottish, um, the expression of Scottish national sentiment before the SNP now, we're talking, you know, the 18, late 19th century to 1970s, say, um, was uh, the Scottish national football team, Hampden Park, 140,000 people, most, almost all of them Scots. There weren't very many. There wasn't a travelling English sort of support. It was quite interesting, actually. Uh, Dylan and I tried to look at the history of support for the English national team um, before uh, the, the contemporary era, and it's not very great. Uh, but Scotland's very important in this respect, um, and uh, there isn't actually a, a full history of this. There's um, uh, Grant Jarvie and Graham Walker's book, 90-Minute Patriots, which deals with it. But I think there's a lot more to be said about this. Um, and I think particularly the way that with the end of the England-Scotland game, which was the late 1980s, that focus for the expression Scottish cultural difference and anti-Englishness, which was focused around the, the game every year, the most important football match in Scotland outside of the old firm, if you happen to be a Celtic or Rangers fan. Um, that, that, that's gone, and, and it's much more dissipated now. And England and Scotland don't play each other very often. But they did quite recently, and I was in Edinburgh um, <laughs> when they did, and I was under no doubt that uh, football still carries uh, a national punch. Um, England cricket, 
got to be cricket. It's one of the areas that there's a lot of writing about. Um, some of it very good. I thought um, David Kiniston and Stephen Fay's book on cricket, the soul of English cricket. It's a very interesting way in which you look at the mythologizing of cricket as a symbol of Englishness. Tony Bateman, Jeff Hill, um, Bateman particularly wrote his PhD on on the literary, um, the, I can't even remember the word he used, it's a very long word, um, the literary um, representation of cricket as a, as a kind of unique form of Englishness. Um, so that, uh, that worked, out. I think it's been interesting um, and been well done actually um, on the whole. Um, Derek Burley's history has got, is, is sort of, you know, absolutely kind of saturated with, with this kind of thing. Um, on the whole, um, now, I, I, just briefly, I think, in terms of general history, uh, recognizing these sorts of things, I think the most important thing I found was Ross McKibben's history, Classes and Cultures of England, in which, you know, you have the leading social historian, uh, certainly of England, in the first half of the 20th century, devoting 50 pages of the book to sport. It's a book of about 400, 450 pages. So it's a real significant contribution. And McKibben had an interesting sort of view that, um, as a historian of the Labour Party originally, he saw, he was very interested in the way the Conservatives and Liberals in the 1930s, national government particularly, sort of brought sport and cricket in particular into a kind of deep, deep sort of anti-socialist politics of you couldn't really, you know, Socialism was some foreign thing. And, you know, if you're really English, you believed in cricket and the monarchy and the empire and so forth, and the hierarchy and all that. And I think there's probably more to be done about the deep politics of sport like that. Rob Coles, of course, has also, you know, written extensively about that. But it also made me think one word, must mention this person, but it's very sad. Um, uh, Stephen Jones, who was an early historian of sport in 1980s, wrote books about workers at play, about sport and labor politics. He was killed in a road accident when he was 30. And he really was someone who, you know, if he had, you know, lived, there would have been much more, and I think much more on the kind of broadly political dimensions, ideological dimensions anyway, um, of sport. Finally, I'm running over time, I'll, I'll wind up. Um, internationalism, that's the other bit. The bit. Um, I've done less in my own area on this. I think there's three aspects to this. I mean, there is, um, uh, what are the three aspects? Oh yes, Imperial Olympic International. I'm not going to say any more about imperial stuff. It, 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 it followed on from Mangan's work on the ideology of athleticism, of, you know, the um, imperial civil servants that went out to run the empire. It then leads into the idea of the, you know, imperial rule through the incorporation of elites. And, uh, you know, here Ramchandra Gua's work, Corner of a Foreign Field, Prashant Kadambi's more recent books, a splendid book. Um, they, they followed that through very well in India. C.L.R. James, Jeff Hill's book about Leary Constantine um, has followed that through too. Um, 
that area is is, is important and um, and is being researched and and perhaps you know some aspects of it. Uh, of internationalism and British sport have been overdone. I mean, I don't think I need to know any more about the Bodyland series, actually. I mean, it was important, you know, but I think it's probably been, you know, as well studied as needs to be and so forth. There's been interesting work, of course, done on sport and anti-apartheid, and that's been reasonably well covered. Um, the Olympic stuff, it's surprising that there isn't a general history of Britain's relationship with the Olympic movement. Britain was tremendous. Britain was the model for Kubatan. British officials were quite important in the earlier history of the Olympics, um, so have held the Olympics three times. You know, Martin, uh, Martin Polly's done really good work about Olympic heritage and material culture. And there are other, Luke Harris on 1908, Tony Mason did some work on 1948, Norman Baker. But I suppose there's a big book, there's a big book waiting to be written there about Britain's rather difficult relationship with the Olympic movement in many ways, but, but a very important one. And that really leads you to the sort of international side. Um, there's, there's two aspects to that. There's, there's sport as a vehicle for diplomacy. Um, and Peter Beck's scoring for Britain, that was the first thing that I read about it. Uh, Martin as well had written on that. There's work on the 1936 Olympics. I, I put my toe in the water on one or two occasions for that. Um, but there isn't that much, actually, and there's more to be done. I know that Heather Dichter works on the Cold War and post-war British sport. That's really important, and I think that is an area of that will attract more attention um, in the future. Uh, so the other aspect to, and I, sorry, that's just very brief. I mean, there really is need for a much bigger sort of, if you like, diplomatic and political history of sport. I mean. Thatcher and the 1980 Olympics and all that. Um, the other aspect is, is cultural transfer. That's the final bit I want to talk about. Um, how did, you know, we taught the world to play idea, which has been, you know, circulated and recirculated. And it's partly true. <laughs> it's not entirely true. But how we taught the world to play, how, how the process of cultural transfer works when people take you know, British sports, and then they take them into their own societies and they make something different of them. The, the pioneer of this was um, Christiana Reisenberg in her book, English Sports and Deutsche Burger, which was published about early 1990s, I think. It's never been translated. Uh, it's a superb book. She's written, she's written a number of articles where she indicated how. So how did the Germans in a way, take up British sports. Which ones did they take up? How did they play them? What was the role of um, contacts, whether diplomatic, whether commercial? Was there an indigenous uh, English community that was copied and so forth? Um, the similar things for France. Um, uh, I just examined uh, with Daphne at the back here, we examined uh, a really splendid thesis on, on uh, Francais des Sports Britanniques, um, just a couple of months ago, um, in which, you know, for the first time, you actually saw the process by which these sports were introduced, which schools, which clubs, how the clubs were related to each other. This person had really done the, you know, the grassroots work, and you could understand the process of cultural transfer. 
So, yes, look, I knew I would go on too long. <laughs> and, and there's all kinds of neglected topics. And there's neglected sports, bowls, you know, athletics is a bit neglected, motorsports, martial arts. Um, uh, there's neglected periods, as I indicated, um, and neglected topics. I mean, um, I've talked about peace, but of course there's war. And war and sport has certainly, I mean, it's become much better studied now. Tony Mason's um, and Eliza Reedy's book was a path-breaking book. Alex Jackson on the First World War, Matt Taylor on the Second World War. Sports architecture. Um, Daphne, Daphne Brooks was a pioneer in sports, working on sports architecture, comparing Berlin and Rome. Um, the wonderful Simon Inglis. If anybody deserves a bloody knighthood, it's him. Um, Instead of the kind of people that get them. Uh, and, uh, you know, the English, that, that Heritage series is really a fantastic series. And, and I've used it as a kind of source book for things, you know, looking up and looking at pictures of different cities and so forth. So that's that. I think lots has been done. Um, there are lots of general histories. Um, I won't go through them all now. Um, you know, I think uh, there was a first generation that I was part of where we looked at you know, there was the first critical mass of work, which appeared in the 70s and 80s. Anyone who's seen the bibliography of Rob Cole's recent book, um, which isn't like a book in itself, um, uh, will know how much has been done since then and uh, how, uh, in a way, demanding it is, and I say this, someone's trying to do it, to sort of pull things together with the mass of of new research. But that's what we set out to do. We set out to make sports history part of history. And I think that's what we've done. So thank you. We're going to try and wrap up about 25 past to give people a few minutes to get to the next session. Um, but that does mean we've got a few minutes for yes. a couple of questions for Dick, um, if anyone wants to jump in. What have I missed? I must have missed the <laughs> I missed the body. That's a bit of it. You'll get, if you get the text, there's a bit about the body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mike. You started by reminding us of the authentic of sports history for history of men. Now, putting aside in a conference where I was sat in the author of the history of leisure. Oh, right, Peter Borsi. Before he died. Has he died? Yes, he died. That's a fantastic book. Sports history is the history of the young. Oh, right. And and I wasn't quite sure how to, at that point, you know, you both come round. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm sorry to hear about Peter Borsi. Uh, it's a remarkable book, that if you don't know it, because it, it, it does what virtually no other book does, which it goes from the 16th century to the 20th century and on a thematic basis, and he's got place and time and so forth. But it's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, age. I mean, you're looking at a 74-year-old golfer and <laughs> player of mixed doubles. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I do think there is a whole history of age, there's a history of age and sport and, and how sport fits different age groups. But I mean, I think, I think he's right. I mean, 
the, the bulk of competitive sport, uh, and of course the French get these definitely what is sport. And I have a very, you know, capacious recreation, physical activity recreation definition. But if you take a narrower definition of more organized competitive activity, then it is mostly a history of the young. And, um, you know, golf and bowls and a few other <laughs> sports, sports apart. Um, and I think, yeah, that's right. I mean, you could definitely do more about that. I know Russ McKibben's writing a history of, you know, of youth in the 20th century. So I wonder, you know, how we'll look at that. And when you, and I think that probably fits into something I should have said more about, which is just how we know a lot about these very small group of public school, you know, boys mostly, also girls. Um, but we know relatively little about the mass of, you know, children, young, young people that either learned sport at school or played on Saturday mornings or kicked a ball in the playground and how they, how that kind of worked in terms of the dynamics of a, of a youth, of a youth culture. You know, I think it's very interesting. I loved sport when I was about 15. I had nothing else to just kick the ball about. Got to about 15 or 16, I discovered I got a scooter. I discovered Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, and I totally forgot about sport for 10 years. I mean, I used to say, it was the best bit, 15 to 25. I never played a thing. And then I kind of woke up one day and thought, you know, I'm missing out here. <laughs> But, but uh, you know, it's a great, it's a really good question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for the talk. You talk about physical sport, and French comes in non-physical sport, or bridge, go, chess, ah. all of these sort of yeah. events that some people don't think of sports, mm. and some people do think yeah. of and the Olympic movement has considered when it moves to bridge, yeah. etc. Yeah. So, these are areas that really do something, or very, very little. Just yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right that they're understudied. I mean, I just have to put my hand up and say I don't think they're sports. And I mean, you know, it, 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 I do think sport is physical. Actually, it's a lot of other things as well, and it's huge range of different physical skills, and it has an enormous sort of mental element and all that. But maybe it's because I'm not a bridge player or a chess player or anything. I don't, um, uh, I can see that these are highly organized, skillful, competitive, you know, forms of human um, pastimes and forms of, you know, human culture. But, um, and they definitely deserve um, their own studies. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put them in the Olympics, <laughs> but I don't have to decide. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the human, would you also move in the sports stories and fails to the emotional powers? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, Ross raises that. 
like how did it feel? You know, there's sort of holy grail of cultural history. I didn't talk about, I haven't talked, I've talked about content, I haven't talked about forms. I mean, I started off as a social historian looking at structures of class and I sort of, like so many other people, shifted in the end to more to cultural history. What were the meanings? How did it feel to take, and it was, it's just so difficult to know. And particularly for, you know, popular sports um, where um, people didn't write down what they felt. You, you know what Neville Cardis felt about watching, you know, Spooner or McLaren or something like that. He told you in great depth. But, um, but for most people, you don't. And, and I think if you like, yes, a kind of, and, but of course, sport is incredibly emotional. I mean, I, I'm on what John Williams calls the cool end of fandom, you know. I don't, I don't get, <laughs> he's on the hot end of fandom. But um, I don't get so worked up about my team winning or losing. Um, but of course, I'm not typical like that. I mean, people do. And, and the question is, what is that? How do you write historically about that? Um, has it changed? And were crowds in the late 19th century the same or responding in a similar way to, you know, later and then get into the whole hooliganism thing and the um, deindustrialization in the 60s and 70s. Um, you're right. I mean, it's a fascinating subject. The way to do it is obviously oral history. Um, but oral history sort of runs out, you know, round about 19, you know, you can't go back much before 1950s, 40s. But it should be done, and more should be done about, and I think about relationships, family relationships is something I meant to mention. Kinship's important, I think, in sport, and has almost been hardly touched on, you know, when you look closely at teams, I think often people were related to each other. And, um, Friendships, but particularly, uh, I mean, how many, you know, sport is an absolutely central vehicle for friendships. Um, and, uh, you know, for men who found interpersonal relations <laughs> difficult, <laughs> talking about something that you share and, and, you know, love is a way of breaking the ice and, and yeah, I mean, so, it, need, it is definitely needs to be done. Um, how you do it without making it just all a bit sort of vague. Uh, I think you could look at things like um, social events, you know, uh, the sort of things clubs organized um, and dances and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I mean, my, I've got two on my dad's side, my mum's side. I've got an uncle and aunt on both sides that met in a, one met in a, the Heaton Harriers uh, Athletics Club dance about 1930, and the other was in a Newcastle tennis club. Um, so, you know, all that, that link between family, friendship, uh, marriage, and so forth, that's a whole, Rob Lake's done that, when Rob's here somewhere. Um, that stuff is really important, I think. Great. Thanks so much, Dick. We're going to have to wrap up there, but let's thank Dick. Really. Let's thank Dick. Okay, thanks, thanks so much, Dick. I dread think what Dick will think of the debate about esports becoming uh, joining the Olympics. <laughs>
which which will happen. It right. will happen. So we can sit down and watch uh, legal legends kind of very quickly. Quick announcement as we move into parallel sessions, please. Um, please, the chairs, whoever's chairing sessions, please stick to time. Keep your speakers on time, please. Otherwise, the whole day falls apart. Second, for speakers, you will all know this, but there's always one, including myself, who makes a mistake. The seminar rooms you're in have interactive whiteboards. Please do not write on them with markers. <laughs> We've all been there, right? Um, and then finally, is please avoid move, moving between sessions. The timing can never be yeah, second perfect. If you move between sessions, it can cause a lot of disruption. So please stick a session, stick with it. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll see you all at coffee in a bit.